Paul's letter to the Romans, it's one of the longest and most significant things ever written by the man who was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. He was a Jewish rabbi belonging to a group known as the Pharisees, and he was passionate and devout to the Torah of Moses and the traditions of Israel. And he saw Jesus and his followers as a threat. But then he had a radical encounter with the risen Jesus, who commissioned him as an apostle, like an official representative, to the world of non-Jewish people called Gentiles in the Bible. And so he started going by his Roman name, Paul, and he traveled all around the ancient Roman Empire telling people about the risen King Jesus and forming his followers then into these new communities called churches. And Paul would occasionally write letters to these new Jesus communities to help them foster their faith or answer questions. And the book of Romans is one of these. It was actually written quite late in his career. Now we know from the book of Acts that the church in Rome had existed for some time, that it was made up of Jewish and non-Jewish followers of Jesus. But at one point, the Roman emperor Claudius had expelled all of the Jewish people from Rome. And then about five years later, all of those Jews, including Jesus-following Jews, were allowed to return. And when they did, they found a church that had become very non-Jewish in custom and practice. And so this created lots of tension. So that by Paul's day, the Roman church was divided. People disagreed about how to follow Jesus. They were debating about whether non-Jewish Christians should celebrate the Sabbath or eat kosher or be circumcised. And so Paul wrote this letter to accomplish a few things. He wanted this divided church to become unified and for a practical purpose. He was hoping that the Roman church could become a staging ground for his mission to go even further west all the way to Spain. And so these circumstances are what motivated Paul to write out his fullest explanation of the gospel, the good news that he was announcing about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, you know, when I was planning out like the sermons that correspond to the, the reading plan, we're doing 60 days through all of Paul's letters, I thought at first, hey, this is a great idea. And then I realized that, that it would mean that I'd have to cover entire books of the Bible in one sermon each. And I thought, this is a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to do it anyway. So this is like the kind of thing they always tell you when you're learning to be a pastor, don't do this. And I'm doing it. So uh, don't tell anyone else. Um, <laughs> So Romans is, you know, it's the first of Paul's letters you get to after Acts, and that's why it's first in the reading plan. It's not to do with chronology. It's actually one of the last ones that he writes. And one of the key differences between Romans and the rest of Paul's letters is all of the other letters that Paul writes, he writes to churches who have either contacted him directly about specific issues or he's heard of problems in churches that he planted and he's writing to them to deal with things he's hearing about them. All the other letters he writes are to people he knows who are dealing with specific problems. And so they tend to have a very specific focus. Romans is different because he's never been to Rome. He doesn't know this church. And 
while there is the, the issue of this sort of divide between the Jewish and Gentile Christians, he's got an overarching concern, which is to make sure that they hear the same gospel message that he knows all the churches that he himself planted heard in the first place. So Romans gives you this incredible overview of how Paul understands the Christian gospel, how he understands the work of Jesus. This book is the foundational text for most of Christian belief because it takes what the Gospels tell us, the stories of Jesus, and explains how those fit in with the Old Testament and how they then apply to our life. So I'm going to tell you all of that in 20 minutes. Great. No problems, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah, this is recorded. I shouldn't say that. Um, So we're going to be hopping, you're going to get a lot of scripture today, folks. You're going to be hopping throughout the entire book of Romans, but we start in chapter 1, verses 18 through 22. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. You know it's going to be a good sermon when we start off with the wrath of God, right? That's great. Talking about wrath and judgment makes us uncomfortable. We start to feel like we're in a Baptist church. I get it. Um, those of you who've been here for a while, though, you know that I'm, I'm not a fire and brimstone guy, so I'm not about to spend 20 minutes talking about avoiding the wrath to come. Um, but the Bible talks about wrath and judgment, and that means we have to understand what it means and what those are about because they're in there, and if we don't deal with them, we're going to get the wrong understanding of what it means. So the first point here is to recognize that it says the wrath of God is revealed in the face of sin. This happens precisely because God is good and loving and holy and just. Human rebelliousness ensures that God's divine attributes are going to come into conflict with our desires. And that's going to appear from time to time as something like punishment or retribution. But this, this is not an image of an angry God waiting up there with the big stick to whack you when you go wrong. Okay, that's not. What this is, is an image of human beings doing things which create natural and unpleasant consequences. The idea all throughout Paul's work is that that sin is going against the way God meant the world to work. It's, a, it's violating the, the laws of morality, which for Paul, the moral law of the universe is just as real and impossible to violate as the physical laws of the universe. He understands the consequences of sin as being just the natural effect of you do this, then X happens. It's like when you stumble, you fall which means that God's saving work is preventing the, the natural, inevitable consequences of your own actions. And he's talking here specifically about people who did not have the scriptures to read. So he has this, this wonderful statement about the, the, what, is, what can be known about God is plain to them. In other words, even if you don't have the scripture, even if you weren't raised with the Torah to read, even if you didn't go to the temple in Jerusalem, even if you didn't experience the revelation of God in that way, because God is the creator of the world we live in and he created us, 
There are things we can know about God simply from observing the world we live in. God's truth is revealed in all kinds of ways, so no one is without excuse. We are able to come to a a limited knowledge of God, but still a knowledge of God and of God's will through the world around us, through our own abilities, through our own own minds, our own ability to reason. And so everyone can be held accountable. Every form of wisdom that we have access to is a form of divine revelation. Science and philosophy and art and literature, none of it is truly 100% secular. They're all gifts from God which reveal the truths of God. And so when we abuse these things and claim them for our own and reject the God to which they all point, we become fools. Which brings us to his next point in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and to things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious towards parents. Sorry, kids. They're foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, yet they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. And so all the understanding of truth that's been granted to even the wisest of the Gentiles, the wisest of the pagans, it only serves to increase their condemnation because they rejected what they knew and turned to their own idols instead. In other words, he's saying, if you have all this wisdom all this education, you should be able to see the truth that is plainly before you, but you're rejecting it because you would rather worship your idols. Human pride turns even the wisest among us into fools. Now Paul, along with most of the early Christians, has no problem blaming all the evils and all the problems of his day on the errors of paganism, on the, on the idolatry of that is practiced all around him because they are convinced that when you worship idols, what you're doing is you're actually unleashing destructive, chaotic forces into the world. So the idolatry of the pagans around him created immorality, and we're then invited to think what exactly, what kind of immorality is created by our modern idolatries, the things we direct our worship to instead of God. What immorality is that creating around us? And the thing is, in the modern world, conservatives will tend to treat sin as purely a problem of individual behavior, and progressives will tend to treat sin as solely the result of top-down social structures that create injustice. But, But Paul and every other New Testament author and all the theologians of the first three centuries of the church see it differently. They see sin as being both of those things. It is, it is both individual behavior in rebellion against God and its collective social evils. And they're interconnected, which means that sin is much more complex and much more dangerous than we have tended to realize, and its consequences are therefore much more complex and much more dangerous than we have tended to realize. And so Paul insists that God doesn't abandon or reject those who rebel against them. He actually leaves them alone. He leaves them to their own devices to work out the consequences of their disobedience for themselves. Because to go against God is to go against nature. 
the way that God has designed you and the way that God has designed the world around you. And so the result of sin is actually to drag people down into ever greater depths of, of absurdity and evil, and it clouds your judgment, and it clouds your vision, and it, it heightens your readiness to tolerate other evils, and it gets to the point where we are no longer able to discern right from wrong on our own. We are totally enslaved to the power of sin in our lives. Which brings us to his next point in chapter 3, starting in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight by deeds prescribed by the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. One of the trickiest parts of Romans, and, and of all of Paul's letters, but Romans in particular, is the way that he talks about the law, uh, the, the law of the flesh and the law of the spirit, the law of Moses versus the law of Christ. Uh, all of the, the, his references to the law and how it plays out and what it means, it, it can really mess you up unless you understand how Paul thought the law was meant to function. And this is something that gets overlooked all the time. But for Paul, the law, the Torah, the law of Moses was fundamentally not about forgiveness or justification. And it never delivered on those things either. It would have if people had ever been able to faithfully uphold it. But they always failed. Everyone but Jesus fails to uphold the law. It's only the fact that Jesus is able to perfectly abide by the Torah that he's able to deal with our sin. So the purpose of giving the law to all of Israel and asking them to uphold it, even though God knew full well that they would never be able to do it, is to make sin recognizable. If the problem is that sin has clouded our judgment and our vision so much that we can't even figure out what's sin and what's not, the purpose of the law is to shine a light in the darkness and enable us to recognize what sin is. To give us something that will open our eyes to the reality and the scale of the problem. And so picking it up back in verse 21. But now, irrespective of the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus on the cross has dealt with sin once and for all. In Jesus, the law of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, is fulfilled and made redundant. It's not discredited. It's, it's not that the law failed or that the law was plan A and Jesus is plan B. Jesus was always the plan, and he was the only plan. The law drew sin out, made it recognizable, and then Jesus dealt with it for all to see. 
And in doing so, God's faithfulness to his covenant is made clear. He's fulfilling the original covenant he made all the way back with Abraham to bless all the nations through his descendants. Jesus is his descendant, and through him now, God is blessing all nations. And so now, all who have faith in Jesus may stand justified before God. All the marks that used to set apart the people of God, the circumcision, the keeping of Torah, the offering of sacrifices, are all redundant because now the only thing that marks you as one of God's people is faith in Jesus. And so skipping ahead into Romans 4, verse 9. Is this blessedness then pronounced only on the circumcised or also on the uncircumcised? We say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still circumcised. The purpose was to make him the ancestor of all who believe without being circumcised and who thus have righteousness reckoned to them, and likewise the ancestor of the circumcised who are not only circumcised, but who also follow the example of the faith that our ancestor Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. I'm, uh, I'm actually going for a world record of the most number of times someone says the word circumcised in church, so we're keeping a tally. Um, we're getting close. Abraham didn't have the law, but he had faith. What Paul is saying to his, his readers here, to, to the Jewish half of the church he's writing to, is look, you all recognize that this man, Abraham, is your father. You all hold him up to be the most righteous of our people who's ever lived, the one who, who God promised to use to save the world, and yet he didn't have the law. Which means the law can never have been the thing that God was going to use to declare us righteous. Abraham had faith. Faith precedes the law which means the law doesn't justify anybody. All it does is it illuminates the dark reality of our fallen world. Righteousness has always been given to us through faith. Faith is all we need, and it's all we have ever needed in order to be justified. The law's relevance, then, is only that it helps us understand how God desires for us to live. So now we come to Romans 8. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So this is Paul's explanation of how God deals with human sin. The letter opens with an explanation of the depth of the problem, the scale of the problem that God has to deal with, and then he explains what God's plan has been all along, and now he's summing it all up. Those who are in Christ, who place their faith in Jesus, who now embody the life of Christ as faithful Christians indwelt by the Holy Spirit, 
have no condemnation because they are now part of Abraham's family. The law was weakened by flesh. In other words, if flesh hadn't weakened the law, then it could have actually given us the life it always promised to give. But because it was weakened by flesh, all it could do was condemn. It pointed out our sin. It shone a light on it. And it pronounced guilt. And in fact, it drew sin out. It drew the force and evil of sin onto Israel from out of the darkest corners of the world. There's a sense in which the law is a trap that God has laid for sin. Because in Paul's thought, sin is not just a pattern of behavior. It's not just a breaking of the rules. It is an evil and inhuman force that is at work in the world. It's a cosmic tyrant which will compel us to do things that we know we shouldn't do and that we don't actually want to do. It controls us. It exercises dominion over us. And so through the Torah, God has laid a trap. He's drawn the sins of the world onto Israel. And Jesus, who was the only one who was able to actually perfectly uphold the law of Torah, the one who can embody the life of Israel in one person, draws the full force of sin onto himself on the cross. That moment is the moment when evil strikes its greatest blow. Sin is at the height of its power when the nails go in. And God defeats it. He condemns it. The images of a law court. God condemns sin in the flesh. And I want to be clear. He doesn't condemn Jesus. He condemns sin. And this fulfills the law perfectly. If in Adam, human obedience is dislodged from its proper place and given over to sin, if we're obedient to sin because of that, then Christ's obedience to death on the cross restores human agency, gives us back our ability to see through the darkness, to choose to serve God rather than to serve sin. It makes obedience to God possible once more. And so now in verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because the law has been fulfilled, because the power of sin over us has been broken, God has brought all who have faith in him into his covenant. We've been grafted on to the family tree of Abraham. There's nothing now which can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has already sent his son to die for us. Christ has chosen us. And if you're going to understand Paul's idea of election and predestination, you've got to forget everything John Calvin ever said or wrote because he and others misread Paul entirely. And just a shameless plug, I did a podcast last week all about what election and predestination mean in Paul's letters. Um, but, but to understand this, Paul's statements about predestination and election are universal. God chose everyone. Everyone is destined for salvation unless you reject God's offer. He's not a universalist. He's pretty clear that some people choose to rebel against God and to stay in rebellion, that some people will reject God's free gift of grace, and that because they are rejecting God's free gift of grace, the responsibility for that is all on their shoulders. 
but that God offers salvation freely to all. And for those of us who respond to God's gift of salvation, who, who accept it, there is nothing to fear. Christ chose us. He died for us. And he lives again for us. And even now, he intercedes on our behalf at the right hand of the Father. There is no greater protection than that. The one who died for you on the cross is even now at the Father's right hand, interceding for you by name, individually. And so we move on to Romans 12. If I can turn the page. The first part of this letter, the first 11 chapters, these are, these are the summary of the gospel of the theology. He begins by explaining the depth of the problem, explaining God's plan, explaining how Jesus deals with sin. Chapter 12 and onward is Paul teaching the moral consequences of the Christian life. This is what it means if you are a Christian. If you believe all the things you say you believe, this is what it's going to look like. But it's all summed up in chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are to be a living sacrifice totally dedicated to the pursuit of righteousness. That's our job. We give ourselves over completely to God. Submit ourselves to him fully. That's what it means to serve Christ, to, to be a, a, a Christian, is to be a living sacrifice. You are no longer your own, you're his. And this requires, I love this part, the renewal of our minds. We're not an anti-intellectual faith, my friends. We're called to study the scriptures, to think about them, to study the world around us and think about that, to understand it in depth, to renew our minds through the presence of the Holy Spirit, to understand the will of God all the more, to understand God all the better, to understand the creation that we live in even better. To correctly understand the will of God means to have your mind renewed in Christ. We've all sinned. No one is innocent. Every last one of us is guilty. And we have all committed both individual and corporate sins. And this, my friends, is not, not a judgmental statement. It's not, it's not even a damning thought. It is precisely a freeing concept. Because Christ has paid the price for all of our sins, and he's broken the power of sin, and we are free. And if all of us are sinners, then no one needs to be ashamed. No one needs to... to mourn the loss of their innocence because you don't have any innocence to lose. No one needs to defend your innocence because you weren't innocent in the first place. No one needs to judge or condemn anyone else because Christ has paid the price for their sins and because, frankly, you aren't any better than they are, are you? In this knowledge, we are free because we understand that we are all in the same boat. We are all just as guilty as everyone else. And we are all just as indebted to Christ as everyone else. It's the great leveling of the playing field. You 
We don't have to worry about whether we've done enough. We don't have to worry about our failures or whether we'll measure up or not. Because God justifies us through Christ. All we have to worry about is how we'll respond. Christ has died for us. He now lives for us. And he intercedes for us. And he has chosen all of us to be his people. The choice before us is will we reject him or will we become living sacrifices for him? In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.